As we're doing that, if you wouldn't mind opening up to Matthew uh, chapter 5 as we continue our look at King Jesus and who that is and what that means for us. So as we get started, you know, there's just, there's just some things that don't go well together. You know, I uh, had a conversation with one of the youth workers and we were talking about fun activities for, for youth to do. And uh, one of the things we thought about was looking at some of the, the odd taste combinations that people in our world like, that many of us would go, those don't go together, but yet people put them together and they eat them and they swear that they taste really good. So I found a list because we have the internet and so that's what they're for, right? And on the internet, these were the top 18 taste combinations that you wouldn't expect. I chose a couple because I didn't want to gross you out too much. But the one that got me the worst, this is a combo of two things that don't go together, but yet somebody somewhere thinks they do. Orange slices and ranch dressing. I can do those separately, but together that just sounds like a dare. How about this one? Ice cream infused with vinegar. Again, sounds like a punishment, not a treat. This is one I'm sure some of you might actually like. Apple pie with a slice of cheddar on top, cheddar cheese. Yeah, so I heard a, yeah, somebody liked that. Another one, though, is turkey and peanut butter sandwiches. Again, not sound, does not sound too fun. There, I found one on the list, though, that I think goes together and that I wouldn't mind having. Mac and cheese with pickle slices inside. See, that sounds good to me. I got a couple of you saying yes on that. All kidding aside, there are all sorts of things that by personal preference, we want to go together that actually probably don't. But in reality, there are some things that cannot go together. They are the exact opposite of each other. And no matter how hard we try, they don't go together. So I'm reminded of a famous, notorious gangster by the name of Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen was a gangster. He was born in 1913, died in 1961. He was a contemporary of Al Capone. As a matter of fact, he met Al Capone on several instances. Mickey Cohen had served time in jail. He ran numbers. He ran rackets. He probably had people killed. He was a gangster. But one day, he got invited to an evangelism uh, conference, an evangelism tent meeting. And at this tent meeting, he decided to become a follower of Jesus. This was a big deal. I mean, even Billy Graham met with Mickey Cohen and talked to him about what it meant to be a Christian. And Mickey Cohen said, I am a Christian. I've prayed a prayer. I am a Christian. But the funny thing was, a few weeks later, he was back to being a gangster. Some of his Christians, some of his fellow Christians met with him and said, Mickey, what are you doing? And Mickey said, there's Christian football players. There's Christian politicians. As a matter of fact, there's even Christian cowboys. Why can't there be a Christian gangster? See, he had missed the entire point, that to be a Christian means you are a certain type of person, and it excludes certain things that you are no longer allowed to do. You're no longer to be known for being a Christian who's a really nice guy as you are killing the person who didn't pay you their money really nice guy, and you're talking and saying nice things to him while you're giving someone cement shoes and throwing him in the river. Really nice guy as you're collecting your betting fees. 
See, that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is a complete overhaul of who we are. We are to be a totally new creation. What did Jesus say? You cannot, you must be born again. You cannot see the kingdom unless you are born again, born anew. And see, this is where, this is where the Sermon on the Mount takes us. Sermon on the Mount does not let us stay with a, I've added Jesus to my life, but I'm going to live the life that looks just like the rest of the world. Have all the same worries. Have all the same desires. Spend my money and my time on the same exact things. See, this is nowhere near the kingdom. So as Christians, we need, what one author says, is we need the exposure of the life-giving beatitudes. We need the surgery that Jesus needs to perform on us that's right here in the beatitudes and then throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the attitude of the one who depends on God. We're going to see that the one who depends on God is focused on an internal relationship with Christ that then spills out into the rest of their lives, not focused on grabbing it the way the world says. This is the beginning of Jesus' upside-down kingdom. This kingdom is the exact opposite of what you would expect. It's not the strong that get it, it's the weak. It's not the ones who are self-assured, it's the ones who are meek. This is the kingdom of the king who will reign forever. So let's walk through it. Let's start in verse 1. Jesus, uh, Matthew writes, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came near. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So this is the start of the Sermon on the Mount. First thing we notice is it's on a mountain. Hence the name. It's not a very creative name. The Sermon on the Mount is important for two reasons. One, Jesus went up on a mountain. The, the mindset of the people in this time, and even to a certain degree us, is that you go up onto a mountain, there's something special about going up on there. People would go up onto a mountain to hear a special message from the Lord. You know, uh, wise individuals would go and sit up on a mountain. We see this in the Bible as well. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law from the Lord. Jesus goes up on the mountain. Now, I don't know if his mindset was to make him like a new Moses. It probably was. I think Jesus worked on so many different layers that we don't even scratch the surface of them. But he also went up on the mountain for acoustics. And you're sitting up on top of the mountain. Everyone below you can hear you. But Jesus goes on the mountain to teach. Notice it says he sat down. This is doing exactly what rabbis would do. Everyone else stands. The teacher gets to sit. I think that's a great idea. By the end of the service, my legs are shaking, and you guys are all, you know, nice and comfy. No, we won't do that, but that, that's what they would do. He would sit down, and he would teach. He's saying, I'm going to teach. It also says that his disciples came to him. Now, I need to clarify here. This is not the disciples. This is not the 12. The 12 are probably there at this point, but they haven't been officially called his 12 disciples. They won't get that till Matthew chapter 10. So this just means everybody that's following Jesus, all of the followers of Jesus are his disciples, his learners. They want to be like him. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, it says the crowds were amazed. So there were lots of followers of Jesus at this point. So what is this Sermon on the Mount? As we're starting this kind of series within a series, we need to get our minds wrapped around a little bit what the Sermon on the Mount is. 
So the Sermon on the Mount can be found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It goes right after verses, chapters 1 through 4, which is, here is Jesus. He's the king. We see his immaculate conception. We see him fleeing to Egypt. We see his lineage. And now we get the king proclaiming, this is what my kingdom is like. This is the longest collection of words by Jesus in the book of Matthew. It's the longest sermon by Jesus anywhere in the Bible. So we probably should pay a little bit of attention to this. We should probably really pay attention to it. Now, because of how important the Sermon on the Mount is, there's been lots of people that have tried to kind of co-opt it and make it say something it doesn't. We need to read it in the context of the entire Bible. We need to read it in the context of the book of Matthew and not come to it and make it say something that it doesn't. So the way we're going to read this is the already not yet way of reading this. What this means is Jesus is the king. He is here. He's been anointed by John the Baptist. His kingdom is on earth. But yet it's not fully here yet. And so this is not a, hey guys, this is what the future's going to look like. Or this is not a, hey, this is a standard that you can't possibly meet, good luck. This is not a list of things to do to get right with God. Instead, the king is saying, these are what my citizens look like. And this is what they're going to look like and keep looking like all the way till the end of time. This is an identification for us to know if we belong to this kingdom. So really, there's two lenses that we see here, and these are correct lenses that we're to look at. The first one is a big picture lens. It says, these are the type of people that belong in the kingdom. They're a part of God's kingdom. Many times, we look around at people around us, and they're going, oh, there's no way they could be a part of God's kingdom. They're not successful. They're a failure. They don't measure up. And so the first thing it's to do is it's to correct our horizontal view, to make sure that we're not prejudging people, that we're going, that person can't possibly be of any use to God. So that's the first lens. The second lens is internal, for us to look at ourselves and go, do I have these traits? And if I don't have them, I'm not a part of the kingdom. So this is an inward focus, and this is Jesus' main focus here, is where are you? Are you a part of the kingdom? Because if you aren't, you need to become a part of the kingdom. And the way to get a part of the kingdom is to submit to the king. So Jesus preaches the kingdom. He did this right at the end of chapter 4, right before we got into 5. We see the kingdom of heaven in verse 3. We see the kingdom of heaven in verse 9. This is something that's important to Jesus. But look at what he says in chapter 4. He doesn't say, become a member of the kingdom by measuring up. He says, repent says turn and go a new direction a completely different direction see we have it down that we want to do stuff to please god and so if jesus wanted us to continue that and do it more and more and better he just would have said hey please me better instead he says no you've been going this direction turn and go that direction so today if you're here thinking this earns you rightness with god you need to repent. This does not. Being in this room, having a Bible, having it marked up, having attendance at church, tithing, offerings, serving, does not earn you anything with God. You must repent of that. Because ultimately, you are saved by the blood of Christ, not by what you have done. 
So the very first thing we need to see is that our impulse to try to please God is something we need to repent of because that's the starting place to be in the kingdom. So this first section is all blessed, blessed, blessed. Jesus is going to lay out who is in the kingdom. He doesn't start with, here's my, my ideas and here's our big grandiose plan. He starts with, here are my citizens. Here are the people that are in my kingdom. If you're one of these, then the rest of this applies to you. If not, you need to become one of these. These blessings are poking humongous holes in what the world puts out there. So the world says, do it this way and you'll be blessed. Jesus says, no, that's a mirage. That's, a, that's not real. The real blessing is over here. See, sin overpromises and underdelivers. It says, if you do these things, then you will succeed. But it doesn't, doesn't deliver. Whereas Christ promises, and then he delivers, and then he delivers, and then he delivers, and he delivers, continuously so his promises are sure his promises are confirmed they are going to follow through so as we look at this we need to understand that this is the marks of what it means to follow christ are these individuals referenced in the beatitudes so let's read them we're going to read them all together Um, verses three four and five blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These are called beatitudes. The word beatitude does not mean be with this attitude. There's not enough T's in the word attitude. What this means is this is a Latin word that means blessed. So somebody came along and just said, hey, let's instead of call them the blesseds, we'll call them the beatitudes. It just simply means blessed. These beatitudes are otherworldly. They don't really match anything that we see in this world. And really, honestly, with the exception of the Sermon on the Mount, we don't use this word any of it any times. This is one of those church words. It's one of the Bible words that we just don't throw around. You're not going to be walking through Fred Myers and hear someone say, boy, that's a good beatitude you got there. It's not something that is used by people. And there's a reason for that. And I think it's partially because this is so important, it gets its own term. This is a vision of God's kingdom, of Christ's kingdom breaking into earth. These beatitudes are the Father's promise through the blood of the Son and the securing of the Holy Spirit for each and every one of us if we're in Christ. So the beatitudes are made up of eight pronouncements, eight statements. And these are not about virtue. These are not general virtues that you go, well, if you're a Christian, you should do these. If you're a non-Christian, you should do them too because there's blessing assorted with it. That's not the way this works. These are descriptions of authentic followers of Christ. But there is encouragement here because these come from our relationship to Christ, meaning there is nothing in our lives that disqualifies us from getting this. And so this is an encouragement. There is not a single person outside of, the, outside of the kingdom that can't get into the kingdom. The kingdom is available to all. So the first thing we need to understand about the Beatitudes is that these eight Beatitudes are not attributes that we should have, but some of us don't. They are the description of a full Christian. So don't be like, well, you know, I got like three. How many you got? Uh, oh, I got four. Okay, you're, you're varsity and I'm not. 
right? It's not like that. This is not an aristocracy. This is not a clergy laity thing. So your pastors, we've got all eight, but you laity, you got only three. That's not the way this works. The way this works is this is how all Christians ought to be, how all Christians are to be because of the work of Christ in their lives. These are the characteristics of followers of Christ. So as we go through these over the next few weeks, where you're lacking, that's where you need to pray and lean into and say, Lord, work on me on this trait. I am not poor in spirit. I am not hunger and thirsting for righteousness. And you know what? Maybe I'm not getting persecuted. There are reasons why those are missing. Let the Lord work on you to bring those out. Those are the things that need to be there. Because ultimately, these eight Beatitudes are a picture of our Savior. Do you see that? He is all of these. He could go through each of these and say, I am poor in spirit. I am mourning. I am meek. Because this is who we're to be like. And so when we are like this, we are like the one who is our Savior. So how do we read these Beatitudes? There's two ways to read it. The first one is the if-then way. If I do these things, then God will do these things. If I am poor in spirit, he will give me the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to work on my poor in spirit. Another way to say that is these beatitudes are how to get blessing. But notice the order of the words. Blessed are those people. It's not they did these and then got blessed. The fact that they are this is the blessing. That's a part of it. So the correct way to view these, the correct way to read these, is to recognize these are the ways we recognize who is in the kingdom. They're to help us see if we're in the kingdom. If I'm not poor in spirit, I am not walking with my Lord and Savior. If I'm not mourning over my sin and the sin that permeates our world, I'm not walking with my Savior. If my default is pride and arrogance and not meekness, I'm not walking with my Savior. Repent and let him work on you. So this is a description of what it means to be blessed. And there's no greater blessing than to have the Lord, your Lord and Savior working on you. These Beatitudes are not how-tos. They are explanations of what it means to have a relationship. So to kind of summarize what we've been talking about is that Jesus is not prescribing how to be blessed. Not like the doctor that says, take two of these and call me in the morning. That's not the way it works. Rather, it's describing who is blessed. He's saying, these people are blessed because they're in me and this is what they look like. Do you look like me? And if you don't, let me work on you, because that ultimately is it. The Sermon on the Mount is not a to-do list. Don't put it in your reminders with the little check boxes. It's a good news list. It's a good news list saying that if you feel this way, if you are in the midst of mourning of the effects of sin in the world and on your life or your own life, you will be comforted. There's encouragement there. And when you are meek and you get trampled on in this world, which our world says, don't let anyone do that, you will inherit this world. You will inherit from your King, Savior, Christ. So Jesus is not saying, work on these things. He's saying, surprise, this is what my kingdom looks like, and it's not what you expected. At some point, we got to get to the point to realize that Jesus is not going to do what we expect. 
And I don't know if the disciples ever got that because they were still startled all the way up till his death. They went, I'm expecting him to stay dead. Nope, he's not. It's the same for us. He doesn't do what we expect. Think about that blessing of, of what Abraham and others heard. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the right relationship with God that is the start of all these beatitudes. One translation translates the word blessed as divinely happy. These beatitudes are the, showing us the marks of what it is to be in the kingdom. So these are the kingdom citizens. These are the ones who are there. Are you one? Do you see this? One author writes, we shall never get anywhere in our search for happiness until we give up trying to find it on our own efforts and instead receive it as the free gift of God. See, that's the picture. So what do these Beatitudes actually teach? Now let's get into it. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word blessed literally means happy. The problem with the word happy is in our culture and our society and our usage, it is a based on circumstances. I'm happy when I hit three green lights in a row on McLaughlin. I'm happy when my fast food order is correct. I mean, these are things that are based on circumstances. And so for us, this word happy is too superficial. It's a deeper, it's a deeper blessedness here. One author says, probably the most non-churchy correct way to say it is congratulations. Congratulations, poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of what this means. Because when we think of blessed, it's like this religious term or it's got a hashtag in front of it. it but congratulations, this is where you're at. You are this way. You are a part of the kingdom. Congratulations. You're just the person I'm looking for, is what Christ is saying. So what does this mean, poverty of spirit? Poverty of spirit. Well, I've got five little statements here, and then I'll kind of explain them. Poverty of spirit is a sense of our powerlessness in ourselves. It's a sense of our spiritual break, bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It's a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It's a sense of personal unworthiness before our God. It's a sense that if there's any life or joy or usefulness, it will be all of God and all of grace. Now those words were chosen on purpose, and I, and I didn't choose them. I'm just taking this from someone who's a lot smarter than me. But this idea of a sense is important. Notice I said a sense of powerlessness, a sense of bankruptcy, a sense of helplessness. Why didn't I say the actuality of it? Because here's the thing. Every single person on earth, whether they are in a church and are a follower of Christ, or if they're outside, is spiritually bankrupt. Every single one of us is spiritually bankrupt. Because if we do not have Christ in us, we cannot overcome that. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying everybody's spiritually bankrupt. Everybody is poor in spirit. But not everybody who's poor in spirit is blessed. So what's the difference between the people that are poor in spirit and not blessed and the people that are poor in spirit and are blessed? And it's one word. It's Christ. Without Christ, spiritual bankruptcy stays. This idea of spiritual poverty is the opposite of self-love. 
It's the opposite of self-assurance and, and this idea of I am so strong in myself. I once heard somebody say you had to first love yourself before you could love others. And that's exactly what our world teaches, but we never get to that second part. We just stay loving on ourselves. See, we need to not turn theology into therapy where we say, I'm not really worried about righteousness. I'm worried about my happiness. I'm not really worried about holiness. I want to be whole. I'm not really worried about, you know, the truth. I'm worried about my feelings. See, if someone were to make a statue that represents the 21st century individual, it would be a statue of a person hugging themselves or admiring themselves in the mirror. Now, honestly, every other century had the same problem. So I'm just ragging on us because we're all here and we're in the 21st century. But this is the picture that we have. So much of what we do is focused on I can get this. I can do it. I can pull myself up. It's the American way. But the poverty of spirit says I can't do it. When it comes to my salvation, I cannot do it. And this is why Jesus starts here. This poverty has nothing to do with how much money we have in our bank accounts. Nor is it a, I'm going to walk around like Eeyore all the time. Instead, this is an understanding that before God, when it comes to the having a right relationship with God, everything I bring is filthy rags. It's a humble-mindedness. It's an understanding that all I can do is cry out for mercy. And when I do that, He hears me. And then look at the promises. All of those promises in the Beatitudes are yours. The kingdom of heaven, the comfort, the kingdom of this earth, and it continues and continues. So poverty of spirit is spiritual bankruptcy. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the poor in spirit is having a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. Literally getting to the end of ourselves, knowing we can't do it. We just sang it. Did you guys catch it? Thank you guys for doing the song. I totally requested it, and I hope they knew how to do it, and they did amazing. But look at Rock of Ages. Okay, I think it's the second verse. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in my hands I bring. I cannot do anything to reach out to the Lord and grab a hold. He has to get a hold of me. Lloyd-Jones again, he says, being poor in spirit, it is nothing that we can produce. It is nothing we can do in ourselves. It's the awareness of my utter nothingness because I've come face to face with the God of the universe. Nothing can be done on my side except for the emptying out that the Holy Spirit does and gets me out of the way so that I can now have a relationship with my Lord. This poverty in spirit is realizing and coming to the reality of reality. I can't do it. Romans 3 says this. It says, Romans 3.10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You're not the exception in this room. And going, I can do it. Well, but you don't know. I'm actually really good. <laughs> See, we come to God and we go, God, you're sure lucky to have me. I am the, I am the best. I mean, go read your Bible. Because the Old Testament is full of God picking the not best. 
He goes and he grabs the ones that are the least so that he can make the most of them, not because they were so great. He grabbed them and made them great because he's so great. So praise be to God that we're not stuck with our attributes. We are filled by him and we get new ones. I love it. Spurgeon says the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. The lower you go, the higher you rise in the kingdom. So what is this kingdom of heaven? Well, the word heaven, again, is one of those words that has baggage in Christianity. Here it means the air. And I think what Jesus is saying is he's saying this is not a realm that's distant. It's a realm that's all around us. It's at hand. It's here now. It's populated by citizens like you if this is what you are. You know, the Puritans love to write big, huge books about like one verse. And they, they did that here with this. Thomas Watson wrote a 400-page book on the Beatitudes. So 10 verses, 400 pages. So he dug really deep. One of the things he did was he said, God's kingdom of heaven is different than every other kingdom in the world. And he gave five reasons why. First reason, God built it. It wasn't made by founding fathers. It wasn't, you know, made by fiat. It's by God. The second thing is it's the richest kingdom in history. Read Revelation 21. Look at the description of the future place where we're all going to be. That new Jerusalem destroys every other palace in the world. The third one, it's perfect. Every other kingdom has defects. Even when countries and kingdoms try to trick themselves and say we don't have any flaws or warts, they have them. This kingdom has none. Number four, the kingdom is secure. The kingdom is secure. It doesn't need walls. It has walls, but it doesn't even need them. And fifth, the kingdom is stable. It will never fail. Hebrews 12, 28. It is a stable kingdom. So this kingdom is unlike any other. And so the people that are going to live in this kingdom are unlike any other. They're citizens that look different. We have to learn that we don't have the resources to save ourselves. We must empty ourselves of this desire for self-esteem, bootstrapping it, pulling yourself up because you cannot do it. And praise be to God that he doesn't demand that of us. Instead, he says, stop doing it and let me do it with you and then humbly submit and follow me and I will make you exactly how you're supposed to be. So this first beatitude is the position we must constantly return to. As soon as we feel like we're doing it, We need to return here and go, okay, Lord, I I recognize it wasn't me. It was you. Okay, now use me. And there is the kingdom of heaven. Now we move to the second beatitude. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Mourning just simply means sorrow or sadness. This is most likely talking about disgust at your sin. It's also mourning at the effects of sin in your life, which if you think about it, every single sorrow, death, suffering, sickness, pain, cancer, Alzheimer's, every single thing is a result of sin. If there were no sin, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, there would be no death. And praise be to God that where we're going, the kingdom that the king is preparing for us has no weeping, has no mourning, has no death. And so this is the picture that we have. This mourning is over sin. And and yes, we're at times going to mourn over the sins that are outside of us, but we really need to mourn over our sin. 
Because what ends up happening is we are poor in spirit. We can't do anything to save ourselves, but then we try to do things to save ourselves and we, we are actively going against what God, our King, is doing. We're committing treason. And so we mourn over that. But look at the promise here. We can't go into the rest of the morning here without seeing the promise. You will be comforted. When you mourn, you will be comforted. You will be consoled. That word in the Greek is the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. It means the comforter. I firmly believe that Jesus is even here maybe alluding to the fact the Holy Spirit is going to be your comfort. When you're mourning over the loss of a loved one, when you're mourning over your sin, when you're mourning of failing again to measure up, you will be comforted. And again, the poverty we saw before was not in your pocketbook. Similarly, this is not just mourning about, oh, I you know, hit the stoplights every single one on McLaughlin, or I'm having a rough day. It's mourning over sin. It's mourning over the fact that this world is not where it's supposed to be. And numbed by the discovery that I contribute to that. My sins contribute to the problems in this world. It's interesting that the Beatitudes all start internally. They're all about what we're feeling inside before he starts moving to anything external. So this mourning draws us out of ourselves. Draws us out of ourselves. Not because we've gotten caught in our sin, but because when we see sin for what it is, it is repulsive because it's the exact opposite of God. Sin and God are not to be together. And whenever we're conscious of our sin and we are grieved by it, we need to understand sometimes the griefs, griefs will be really deep, other times they'll be really shallow. This sensitivity to sin does not mean we're walking around with our heads down grieving our sins because that becomes very internal focused. Instead, when we are grieved for our sins, we take them to the Lord because he's the only one that can solve it. He's the only one that can fix it. And I love it that when we mourn for our sins that we've committed to God, we don't go over here and hide from God. Instead, we return to the one that we sinned against, which sounds like a really bad idea in most instances. But in this instance, we come to the God that is full of mercy and he forgives us of our sins that we did to him. It's like doing something to hurt the bully and you want, don't want to go anywhere near him because you're afraid of what he's going to do. Don't be afraid of your God. If you sin, repent, go to him. Let the healing process begin. We need to make sure we understand that these beatitudes build on each other. They're not to be read in isolation. This is the picture of the Christian. See, Jesus beautifies mourning. It's not counseling us to have long faces. But ultimately, we need to understand that sometimes the sadness that we have in our lives is hand in hand with the happiness and the blessedness at the same time. Many times, the deepest joys reside in the persons who have felt the deepest sadnesses. And so there is a place for that in Christianity. We don't walk around and act like everything's okay. Let people in. Have that mourning. Take it to your Lord and know that you will be comforted. Tears will be turned into laughter. Thomas Watson, again, just nails it. He says, gospel tears are not lost. They are the seeds of comfort. While the penitent pours out tears, God pours in joy. He pours in joy. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to feel it at the moment but eventually you will feel that as you weep and the tears are going out and the joy is coming back in. 
So we are poor in spirit. We cannot fix the relationship with our Lord. But praise be to God that when we recognize that and we reach out to him, the kingdom of heaven is ours. When we realize we are working against that kingdom at times and the world is working against that kingdom, we mourn and we mourn and we take it to the Lord and he comforts us, which leads us into the next beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This word meek means gentle or patient, humble, courteous, considerate. This is a self-control that allows these qualities to come out. Meekness is a desire to see other people's needs met over my own. Many times when we think of someone who's meek, we think of someone who's a, a wallflower who never stands up for themselves. We think of it as, well, you know, people, some people are just naturally more quiet and a little more reserved and a little more introverted. That's not what's being talked about here. That's not what this word means. It's not about being a pushover or letting people just have their way at the expense of you. Our culture looks down on that, doesn't it? And as the, the Greek culture and the Roman culture did as well. But the one who is meek instead has learned to submit to difficulties, whether it be a person or a situation, knowing that God is in it for their good. One author defined it this way, and it's a long quote, but I need to read it. Meekness is hard to define. It's not subservient groveling, nor is it spineless acquiescence. Meekness is a combination of patience, gentleness, and a complete submission to God. Meekness is learning to be self-controlled instead of feeling a need to be in control. Meekness is opening your heart instead of clenching your fist. Meekness is the firm resolve it's better to suffer than to sin. Meekness is the, one of the greatest virtues of the Christian, and our world has no place for it. Lloyd-Jones says meekness is essentially seeing the true world, recognizing that there is nothing of value in ourselves, amazed that God or man would think anything highly of us. Meekness is strength under control. Like a child standing at the ocean and the waves that are lapping, the two-year-old's feet, and she feels the water on her feet, and she goes, ah, and she giggles. But that same wave, that same power can knock over a battleship, can beach one of those big, huge container ships. That same power, it is power under control. That's meekness. So meekness is submitting to God and agreeing to God's way of the world. Poverty of spirit and mourning over sin lead us to being meek. So some might ask, well, what's the difference between being humble and being meek? Well, the difference is really not much of a difference, except for the fact that one is a cause and one is the effect. Poverty of spirit is the cause of humility. So knowing that we can't do anything leads us to humility, which makes us meek. Humility is the sweet spice that grows out of the poverty of spirit, says Thomas Watson. Having nothing makes you humble. Spiritual bankruptcy makes you humble. So what's the opposite of this? Well, for many of us, the opposite of this is going to hit really close to home. I know it does for me. When I am, when I am the opposite of meek, I want my way. I go, to the, I go to the restaurant, and it takes an hour for the food, and I go, I could do this better. What is wrong with them? If I was back there, if I was the manager at this place, it would be run so much better. 
But don't you see, that's the opposite of what is listed here. Meekness is submitting to what's going on. See, because we do this with God, don't we? We look at the people around us and we go, why are they getting blessed and I'm not? Why are they this way and I'm not? Lord, I've been so good for you. How is it that you're not giving me what I want? The meek and the humble realize everything is a gift, whether it's the smaller thing or the bigger thing. Because ultimately we're saying, God, if I were you, I would do a better job. That's a pretty scary thing to say. You limited many times unloving individual is saying the God that is love, the God that is omniscient made a mistake. See, when we see God as he is, when we understand his character and we understand Christ as we look at these beatitudes, we see why James can say God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He violently opposes the proud because the proud are saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. God, you did this wrong. Lloyd-Jones again, he says, we spend our whole lives watching ourselves, but when man becomes meek, he's finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself and what others think. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. The characteristic of a man who bows low before God and is able to stand high before men because we bow low because we are worthless we are, we are not able to do it, but God comes along and makes us of worth so we can stand before kings and say, I won't bow down. I will not worship the way you say I'm to worship. I will not submit to you, king, because I am submitting to the king. And see, Jesus is the best picture of this, isn't he? Look at the meekness of Jesus. Compare it to William Wallace. Now, I love Braveheart, and I get choked up even thinking about the end, and I was, I was even listening to the music this week, and I started crying at it. It's just, it's, it's an emotional movie. But look at William Wallace's last words and his posture compared to Jesus's last words. If you're not familiar, William Wallace was fighting for the freedom of the Scottish people played in the movie Braveheart by Mel Gibson. At the end, he's on the rack, he's going to get disemboweled, and he cries out, freedom, and he is obstinate to the end. And spoiler alert, the Scottish get their freedom. But today, is William Wallace on the throne? Is William Wallace the king? Is Scotland even its own country? No, it's a part of another bu bunch of countries. And look at Jesus. What is his words on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And who is still on the throne today? Christ is still on the throne today. The picture of meekness, our world does not understand it. Throughout the Bible, there were many different individuals that were meek. One of the ones that is brought out a lot is Moses. As a matter of fact, Numbers 12 says Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. But look at his lifestyle. He had the, the being saved out of the, out of the Nile River. We ha he had the, the fact that he almost died, but then he killed an Egyptian. He fled and was in the wilderness for 40 years in Midian. He met with the Lord. Moses was not meek by his nature, 
The meekness was pressed down into him. And even as he's standing before the God of the universe with his feet uncovered, with a bush that is burning, he still questions God. God, are you sure that I should be talking to the Egyptians? I'm not very good at speaking. So God goes, okay, you know, I made the universe. I probably know what I'm doing, but okay, you can have Aaron. And then look what happens. Moses does all the talking. See, Moses got to where he was being meek because the Lord pressed it into him. See, God loves to show off his meek servants, doesn't he? He loves to take the lowest and bring them up and go, look what I did. Look what I did. Israel, come on, they're the lowest. Look what I did. See, that's where each of us is. There's probably no more beautiful quality in a Christian than meekness. Sinclair Ferguson says... It enhances manliness. It adorns femininity. It is a jewel polished by grace. But it's too rare. Is that because we are, there are so few of us who know what it means to be poor in spirit and to mourn for our sins? See, meekness is the conclusion of the other two. Because there's some things you can't separate. You can't separate a Christian from being poor in spirit. You can't separate the kingdom of heaven and the comfort promised us if you don't mourn for your sins. You can't inherit the earth unless you are meek. And all of these require repent. Let the Lord do it in you. And then the rewards come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words that we get to read nearly 2,000 years after Matthew wrote them down. Thank you for giving him the remembrance of these words and inspiring him with these so that we could see clearly who Christ is. I pray, Lord, that, that we would not try to earn your favor, but that we would repent of that and allow you to work in us. Make us poor in spirit recognizing we can't do anything to save ourselves. Help us to mourn for our sin that is still so so pervasive in our lives and then as we mourn for the sin and you heal us of that sin and 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 forgive us of it make us meek make us meek not that we can be trampled over but because we are submitting to you and that we will trust you may we all be jewels adorned with poverty of spirit and mourning and meekness lord we'll do a work on our hearts in your name, amen.